0: Let's try that one more time. Good morning. morning. Okay, give me a little complex up here. You don't want to speak back. Amen. Well, it's good to be here this morning. Uh, As it was stated, Pastor John and I have been talking about doing this for a while, and uh, we just think it's good to kind of get outside of our box. Instead of seeing and hearing the same person, the same people all of the time, Uh, to get out and that it's really not our church. I mean, we get to under shepherd by the grace of God. He allows us to to shepherd those churches, but it's really not ours. So no matter what pulpit you step in, you're really in God's house, and you you really should be giving His word. So they gave you the wrong introduction of the speaker this morning because you really don't want me to speak to you. Who you really want to speak to you is the Holy Spirit. So if you hear something good, then it's from Him. If you hear something you don't like, it might still be from him. (laughs) But if you hear something you know is just flat out wrong, then that's me. (laughs) Amen. Uh, John chapter 7 is where we're going to be at uh, this morning. John chapter 7, beginning with the 53rd verse. John chapter 7, beginning with the 53rd verse. And as I like to do over at Mount Zion, when you have it, say amen. Amen. You need a little more time? Say, wait a minute. So either everybody's already there or you just don't want to be embarrassed by saying, wait a minute. Amen. John 57 and 53 in the English Standard Version reads as follows. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Has no one condemned you? She said, No, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. We'll end our reading there. Uh, Father, give us the grace, the peace, the understanding of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The text that we're looking at uh, may not show up in your version of uh, of the Gospel of John, or at the very least, you probably have a footnote there. And this event of the woman caught in the act of adultery doesn't really appear in, in some of the older manuscripts. Uh, the consensus of, of textual critics, though, is that it was not part of the original writing of John's uh, Gospel, at least not in this part of John, but at some time it is, at, at some time, It was placed in there, and it's overwhelmingly believed that this account is authentic and should be included within the New Testament, either in John or some of the manuscript evidence has this account uh, in the book of Luke. And in the words of R.C. Sproul, uh, and I quote what he says about this passage, "Uh, I believe it is nothing less than the very word of God, so I will treat it as such, end quote. This account provides us with a, another look at, at the aversion or, or the issues that Jesus had toward the scribes and the Pharisees. A, at the end of the previous chapter or throughout the previous chapter, we see debate over people, uh, of who the people believed that Jesus was. There were some who believed his, he was the Messiah. Some people didn't believe he was the Messiah. And a similar debate uh, continues today, so that's nothing new for our ears. Uh, there was a, a discussion between the, the temple police and, and the Pharisees where, where Nicodemus, who was obviously affected by his midnight encounter with Jesus, began to defend Jesus to the other uh, Pharisees uh, in, the, in the room, which, as one would expect, they began to turn on Nicodemus in this meeting also. And after this exchange, according to the Bible, everyone goes home And it's in chapter 8 that we are told that at dawn, Jesus went to the temple again. And and as usual, Jesus drew a crowd. He began to teach, and at some point there was an interruption in the Bible study. We see in our text that the religious leaders, these holier-than-thou men, bring a woman caught in the very act of adultery. Now, we need to understand the imagery that's being painted here by John. And let me bring it into our context here uh, for today. Imagine you being in the midst of your small group meeting. Your group is filled with people who are eager to learn about the the word of God. and, And you're sitting there, you're rightly dividing the word of truth. You're really getting into this study. And then busting through the doors comes these men holding this woman, probably dragging her along, bringing her, throwing her in the midst of your study. Her hair is all over the place. Her, her makeup, if she had any, is, is thrown all over her face. Her, her clothes are all messed up around her. These men just bust into your Bible study and throw this woman right into, in the middle of your study. But who are these men that are bringing this woman in the first place? Well, they're the, the scribes and the Pharisees. And some people identify the scribes and the Pharisees as the same people, but that's not exactly correct. The scribes were the Jewish theologians. They, they were sometimes called lawyers because they were the experts in interpreting the Old Testament law. In other words, the scribes were, they were, they was a career being a scribe. But in contrast, the Pharisees constituted a party. They were a movement of conservative religious practice. And, and even looking at the term Pharisee, it means separated one. And not all Pharisees were scribes, and, and not all scribes were members of the party of Pharisees. But it was these, this mixture of these group of men who bring this woman to, this woman to the temple and place her in the middle of Jesus' Bible study. This woman was made to stand in plain view of the group by the scribes and the Pharisees while they questioned Jesus about her actions. Teachers, using that that flattering word to to speak to Jesus, they say, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say, Jesus? Jesus. Now, we, can, we have the benefit of being able to look back at Deuteronomy and, and seeing in chapter 22 that, that stoning was only prescribed if the woman was engaged and not yet married when she engaged in being unfaithful. So they were right. But one omission here. Where's the man? Because the law requires them to bring both, not just one. Both of them needed to suffer the same fate. What happened to the man? Did he escape? Was the woman corralled by a bunch of male chauvinists that they only cared about judging women and not necessarily men who committed the same offense? Was the man one of their own and and maybe they didn't want to bring shame to their particular group so they let him go? Well, the Bible doesn't speak about the other half of this adulterous relationship, but the one thing we know You can't commit adultery by yourself. But it seems clear here that the scribes and the Pharisees did not bring this woman because they cared about the law. They didn't bring this woman because they cared about the sin that she was involved in. They weren't on a mission to to clean up the, the, the temple or clean up Jerusalem as a whole. But as we see in verse number six, they were simply there. To trap Jesus. The law was clear. What, ha- what should happen to both parties is they're supposed to be stoned. But it was also clear in Deuteronomy 17 that if you accuse someone of a capital offense, you needed to be there to throw the first stones. In Deuteronomy 19, it also stated that if you falsely accuse someone, then what was intended for them would now be done to you without pity or mercy. And these men had to know this. They had to know these things. But they continue to push Jesus for a response to the accusations against this woman. Jesus takes an interesting approach to this situation. He ignores them. He just stoops down and he begins writing on the ground. And, of course, there's a lot of speculation about what Jesus wrote. You know, did he write down their sins? Did he write down you know, other people's names, something that may convict them? Uh, I can end all of that speculation right now. He wrote exactly what he wanted to write. Doesn't really matter what he wrote. What he wrote was significant enough to the men who were standing there. Jesus, when you look at this, he actually sided with Moses. He never denied the woman's guilt. She had sinned, and she should be stoned. But what he actually calls into question in this account is the ability of the accusers to execute the judgment. Yes, she is worthy of death because of her sin, but are you qualified to throw the first stones? You are claiming Deuteronomy 22 against this woman. You you desire to operate in Deuteronomy 17, but shouldn't you be worried about Deuteronomy 19? Are you really righteous enough to throw the stones at this woman? And to this point, Jesus has not addressed the woman. And as far as we can see, he hasn't even looked at her. But after Jesus questions the accuser's worthiness to be executors or executioners, he bends down and he begins to write again. After which, the men began to peel off one by one. The older ones first, down to the younger. And Jesus stands, and for the first time we see in this text that he addresses the woman. Where are all the people who brought you here? Was there no one to condemn you? She responds, no. And Jesus then tells her, then I don't condemn you either. Go, And sin no more, as the King James language states. This biblical account provides us with a perfect example of what's so amazing about grace. We sing about amazing grace. We claim it's amazing. But until you actually have grace operating your life, you really don't understand what's so amazing about it. This woman was set up to be used as a pawn in the religious leader's game. Can you imagine? Just because someone wants to get some brownie points or someone wants to take control of something, they take your life and put it on display to make themselves look better in the eyes of other people. How many in here have had that experience? I know I'm the only one where people will step on you. They don't care about who you are, what's going on in your life. They will step on you to make themselves look better. She was just a pawn in a religious leader's game. And it goes without saying that if she was caught in the very act of adultery as we uh, talked about before, she couldn't have been alone. However, the purpose of the religious leaders was not to employ the death penalty against the woman. Their purpose was more devious than that. Who they really wanted to put to death was Jesus. They've unsuccessfully tried to squash his popularity and, and his ministry, so, so here's just another attempt on their behalf to discredit him. They knew the Mosaic Law, and, and since they were teachers of the law, they knew they could have handled this situation without involving Jesus at all. They also knew that under Roman law that they did not have the authority to execute anyone. If someone were going to be put to death, they had to go through the Roman judicial system. They probably thought their plan was flawless. I can imagine them sitting up there the night or the nights before just plotting this thing out. And they would say, well, you know, if Jesus says stone her, then we can accuse him before the Romans. And if Jesus responds, don't stone her, then, then he would be declared a heretic for denying the law of Moses. We got him. No matter how he responds, we got him. But what they didn't consider is that once they involved Jesus, they involved something the law could not. They had laid their plot with care and probably figured they, that they would get their desired outcome, but the unintended consequence of their actions involved someone the law pointed to and something the law could not give. Instead of bringing Jesus down, they actually provided people with a glimpse of amazing grace. This text provides us with five points to show us what's so amazing about grace. The first point that we want to point out here. What's so amazing about grace is that it provides protection. Grace provides protection. Jesus protected this woman from her accusers. These men brought her to Jesus for judgment, but instead of passing judgment, Jesus exposed their guilt. Jesus protected her from the hypocrites that brought her before him. By applying the law to the woman and not to themselves, the Jewish leaders were violating both the letter and the spirit of the law. Just like Jesus protected the woman, he protects us against our accusers. When Jesus came and died on the cross, what he actually did is he was placing the cross between the sinner, you and me, and the, and the righteous judge. Grace provided a, a blessing that we did not deserve. The Bible says that, that, that for the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. But because of grace, we are provided protection because the cross stands before us in that death. So grace provides protection. For those people who, uh, who are here who claim Jesus as Lord and Savior, the same grace shown to us should be shown to others. When we exhibit amazing grace, we realize, unlike the religious leaders in our text, that the law was given to reveal sin, and we must be condemned by the law before we can be cleansed by God's grace. Now, understand this. You don't need a pardon unless you're first found guilty. If you don't need a pardon, then that means you're not guilty. So we had to be first found guilty in order for us to need a pardon. When we exhibit that amazing grace, we're willing to show that type of love to other people. Law and grace don't really compete against each other. They actually complement one another. It is true that no one can be saved by keeping the law, but nobody was ever saved by grace who was not first found or indicted by the law. There must be conviction before there can be conversion. So while we point out the sins of others, grace will have us remember our own iniquities and and cause us to deal with the individual in a manner that would draw them closer to God and not run them away. Grace is so amazing because it provides protection, even in the midst of your accusers. But the next reason that grace is so amazing, what's so amazing about grace is that it provides dignity. Within this same verse, Jesus gave this woman dignity in spite of her situation. They took this woman and cast her in the middle of Jesus and those who gathered to hear uh, what he was teaching. In their desire to entrap Jesus, they were willing to strip her of her dignity. However, Jesus gave her her dignity by refusing to see her in her current state. He refused to see the image they wanted him to see. Jesus refused to look upon her sinful state and refused to address her questioning concerning her guilt. In spite of your situation, in spite of your circumstances, what's so amazing about grace is it provides you dignity. People may only see you where you are, but grace allows you to be seen beyond where you are. You may be seen as a drunkard. By grace, you can be seen sober. You may be seen as a drug addict, but by grace, you can be seen clean and outside the influence of drugs. You may be involved in sexual sin, but grace can see you delivered from that bondage. And this is not about ignoring someone's sin. Grace is realizing that even though a person is having a struggle in an area or two of their life, that person is still a creation of God. That person can still be redeemed. That person is still of value in the sight of God. Grace refuses to look at you as worthless. God placed so much value on our lives that he sent his son to die for us. Jesus also gave her dignity by bringing up the possibility of sin existing in the lives of her accusers. Now, let's be honest. We all know people who walk around like they've never committed a sin in their life. But they want to make you feel as if you're the worst person in the world because of what you've done. They want to make you feel bad about something that you may have fallen into. They want to make you feel bad because you're not where they are in your spiritual walk. All the while forgetting everything that God has forgiven them for. Jesus squashed all all that nonsense and put it back on the scribes. If your slate is as clean as you think it is, if you are as, as holy as you're portraying to be, then start tossing stones. The Bible is clear in stating that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And when amazing grace is operating in your life, you see the sinner as the creation of God that is in need of restoration. You don't see the alcoholic through accusatory eyes when, when you're living out amazing grace. You don't allow for the fact that the enemy has them bound in a particular area and it manifested itself in excessive drinking to view, to to skew your view of that individual. You don't see the fornicator, the homosexual, the murderer, the thief through accusatory eyes. And again, this is not about sloppy agape, but it's about seeing people in the light of God's power. If God can make a change in your life, surely he can help them. See, we think our sin was less than anybody else. At least I'm not involved in that. I'm not doing that. I've never involved myself in that. But the same blood that covered your sin covers their sin. And when you begin to look at people through the grace of God, you can see the blood covering their sin just as it covered your sin. What's so amazing about grace is that it provides protection, it provides dignity, but we see in verse 11 that it also provides forgiveness. It offers forgiveness. Amazing grace provides forgiveness. Jesus said to the woman, neither do I condemn you. In verse number 10, Jesus asked the woman, where are your accusers? Where did they go? All she could say is they're no longer here. Notice, in spite of him knowing what she did, he pointed out that the others were her accusers and that he wasn't doing so. He offered her something the others were not willing to do. He offered her forgiveness by saying, I do not condemn you. Some people in the church spend so much time trying to punish people for their their actions, we forget about grace. Again, this is not sloppy agape. Actions have consequences, but forgiveness is available to anyone who seeks it. The reason many can't offer forgiveness is because they haven't truly received forgiveness themselves. They walk around under condemnation and and want others to do the same. But when you realize how much God has forgiven you and how much he's still forgiving you, you can offer forgiveness to other people. What's so amazing about grace is it provides protection, it gives dignity, it offers forgiveness, but grace also releases a person from condemnation. It releases a person from condemnation. Jesus not only told her that he did not condemn her, he released her by simply saying, go. Of all the people who were gathered here at this time, the one person who could cast judgment on this woman told her, Go. Now, don't misunderstand. He didn't pardon a woman, as we see with others, uh, where he said, your sins are forgiven. He never said that to her. Neither did he say that she, sh- that she hadn't done anything that shouldn't be condemned. He simply did not act as her judge at that moment. But what may be overlooked is not only did Jesus release the woman, he also released those who brought the woman. Those scribes and those Pharisees had committed sin also, but he let them go. They were guilty, but Jesus allowed them to walk off also. How many people do you know that want to act as judge and jury in your life? People who, in their minds, see something that you're doing as sin, and maybe it is. Maybe it really is sin. Again, don't misunderstand. The Bible never tells us to ignore sin. Jesus is saying to her, you have sinned, you have been detected and accused, the sin is great, and even though I have the right to exact judgment, I choose to exhibit grace. If Jesus would have allowed this woman to be condemned either by this religious horde that brought her in or condemn her by his own hand, she would have died in her sins. So you have to understand that grace seeks restoration, not condemnation. There may be someone under the sound of my voice living outside the protection of the blood of Jesus. And and because he does not want you to die in your sins and become separated from him for all of eternity, he has extended another day of grace to you. His amazing grace. And not pronounce a judgment upon you where you are. What's so amazing about grace is it provides protection, it gives dignity. It offers forgiveness. It releases a person from condemnation. And this is the one that I really love. This is the last one. What's so amazing about grace is it requires a lifestyle change. Jesus says, from now on, sin no more. Jesus said to the woman, go, sin no more. Go and leave your life of sin behind. See, sloppy agape or fake grace will allow people to get away with their mess, seeking just to get along with that person. Grace points out the wrong and and sets an expectation of doing better. There's no way to exist in God's amazing grace and not expect change. Just experiencing the gracious forgiveness of God should motivate you and me, should motivate us to live a holy and obedient life to the glory of God. This is the essential difference between people who just go to church and people who are truly Christians. Churchgoers come and they hear the word, but they never experience the life-changing power of the word. And because they never experience the life-changing power of the word, not only do they not change their lives, but they seek to poison the lives of all those people around them. But Christians, on the other hand, Christians ingest the word and they become exactly what they're eating. This requirement to change is what repels many people from Jesus. Many people don't want to come to Christ because of this lifestyle change that is required. They like their sin. They're not trying to give it up. They don't want to remove themselves from it until they're ready. They're not going to come to Christ until they're really willing to accept the grace that God has for them. They uh, They view Christianity through, unfortunately, a lot of Christians. A lot of Christians who walk around with a Bible beating them over the head about what they're doing. Instead of explaining the grace and the love of God, who, yes, in spite of the fact that you're in the mess that you're in, God still loves you. God still desires to have a relationship with you. And even after you accept this gift and you become saved, guess what? You're going to still fall. And that same God who, who grabbed you at, that, at the first point, he will embrace you even when you fall again. This is not a license to sin. But even when we do fall short, God's love, his grace, still is there that we can feel his presence. We can feel his loving arms around. It, it, we, we read it in scripture, and I think Scott will read it later, later in John 3, 17. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. So why, as Christians, do we condemn people who are caught in sin? Why do we do that? Why do we condemn people who don't look like us, who don't smell like us, who don't talk like us, that we condemn them to a life of hell by not wanting to share the gospel with them? Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 and 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not for nothing. In fact, I work harder than all the other apostles, though it's really not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Grace is is described in Scripture as great, as sovereign, as rich, exceeding, manifold, all-sufficient, all-abundant, and glorious. Grace is the source of election, the call of God, the justification, faith, forgiveness of sins. Grace is the source of salvation, it's constant and its hope as saints we are heirs of grace we are under grace we receive grace from christ or we are what we are because of grace we abound in the gifts of grace and we should be established in grace if all that is true how can you stay the same how can you stay the same i believe in many ways this woman is representative of all of us we are all being rightly accused of something worthy of death. According to the law, that is. But God's unmerited favor has been shown to all of humanity, providing the opportunity for the cross to get between us and the payment that we deserve. Grace is love and kindness shown to someone who doesn't deserve it. What's so amazing about grace is the the person who walks past this church every Sunday. What's so amazing about grace is the person who is still in bed with a hangover. Maybe they're laying with someone that's not their spouse. What's so amazing about grace is that person that lives in your neighborhood or, or that you occasionally see that doesn't have the same skin color as you, doesn't have the same economic status as you. What's so amazing about grace is that it puts us all on the same level. It's available to everyone, but none of us really deserve it. God showed how amazing his grace was by sending his son to be our Savior. God's grace allows us to become members of his family. It is the recognition and the appreciation of, the, of that grace that causes A lifestyle change. What's so amazing about grace? It provides protection. It provides dignity. It offers forgiveness. It releases a person from condemnation. It requires a lifestyle change. But the most amazing thing about grace is that it's available to everybody. Father, we thank you We thank you for your grace. We thank you, dear Lord, that it is sufficient for all of us. Father, we know that we don't deserve it. But we're so thankful that it's not about what we think, but it's about who you are. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for protecting us, giving us dignity. Thank you for the forgiveness that it provides. Thank you, dear Lord, for releasing us from the condemnation uh, of our sin, dear Lord. And we thank you for the ability to be able to change our lives. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.